Welcome back to the show. Today, we have a special guest, Michelle Yates. And Michelle is a registered dietitian and medical nutrition therapist. She also has a master's degree in health psychology, and she is very passionate about eating disorders and binge eating in particular as well. And she is passionate because she has her own story of going through an eating disorder, of getting on the other side of it. So today I want to introduce you to Michelle. We're going to talk a bit about her story, and then we're also going to discuss the topic of eating disorders, how to get help, how to know if you have a problem, and a lot more. So this is going to be a very helpful discussion for a lot of people. It may not be particularly relevant to some of you, but chances are there's probably someone in your life who is experiencing some of the symptoms and signs of an eating disorder that we are going to be discussing today. So it may be helpful to tune in, even if you feel like this may not be the right type of topic for you. If it isn't, I recommend checking out one of the older episodes, but I want to make sure that I touch on the variety of important topics in nutrition and introduce you to various experts who can provide knowledge in areas that I really can't do so well in, and eating disorders is one of those. So I'm looking forward to this episode and let's go ahead and get into the show. Welcome to the Nutrition Science Podcast, where we help you cut through the noise and make informed science-based decisions about nutrition and your health. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Nutrition Science Podcast. I'm here with my friend Michelle Yates and we are gonna be talking about binge eating recovery today. So Michelle is very passionate about this topic, very knowledgeable, and I'm looking forward to having her share her story today. So Michelle, thanks for thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. I'm a big fan of your podcast and I'm starting to recommend it to everyone I know. So <laughs> I really appreciate that. Well, you Get can recommend your downloads. episode now. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as a part of it, when it's relevant. So what I want to do is go ahead and jump into the topic and start off with, you know, what, what made you so passionate about this topic? Because I know it's something that's very near and dear to your heart. So I want to kind of get into the story behind why this is something that's so important to you. Yeah, so I'll kind of I'll, I'll bring you back to to little Michelle's world. So as so I I would call myself like a dabbler in all forms of disordered eating. I pretty much have experience with anything that falls under that umbrella, like personal experience. And you know, kind of went back to like when I was a kid, I grew up in a home that there was a lot of Mess. Oh, well, I love my family. Let me say that first. I had a great childhood. I really did. But I did grow up in a home where there was a lot of messages about, you know, this person is fat because they eat too much or they're lazy or they need to go jump on a treadmill and stop eating burgers. Like, I can't even tell you how many times I heard that. And so when you hear messages like that as a kid, you just kind of internalize it and think that, well, you you put that together and you're like, okay, if I gain weight or I end up looking like those people, then my family will like think less of me or I'll be like unlovable or people won't respect me anymore or whatever. So that was like kind of my environment growing up. And then also like peers too. I was born in the 90s. And so it's just like, I mean, think about what was, the body image in the 90s was ridiculous you know like the heroin chic and everything or yeah like that was big and so skinny as possible was like ideal you know be as skinny no matter what the cost that was what people wanted and so yeah like wasn't just my family it was everybody 
And then I grew up, I'm at, like, I have a history of dance too. I danced for a long time competitively, eventually in college, and I taught for a little bit too. And so, you know, literature shows us that dancers and really any aesthetic focused sport has a higher risk for eating disorders and disordered eating. And so I had that little factor as well. And then, I mean, chemically, my personality, I'm just kind of a type A person, perfectionist. And so, I mean, really, I had the perfect storm for struggling with disordered eating. So I did, shocker. And for me, it started out as more restrictive. And I never got like a diagnosis or anything. But knowing what I know now, I would say I was more of like restrictive type anorexia. That's kind of how it presented for a while. And then... Quickly, what what age was that? When did it start? Probably, that's a good question. I mean, I really started getting into like calorie counting and tracking everything and over-exercising when I was, that was where it really like got bad. And then, yeah, so, but I'd been percolating for a long time. I'd also had body, I did have body dysmorphia, honestly, for as long as I can remember. And for anybody who doesn't know what body dysmorphic disorder is, it's like a obsession with flaws on your body. And a lot of times you see things like your reality isn't, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just disproportionate. to what actually. Yeah, distorted. Thank you. Yeah. And yeah, I remember feeling like I was so much bigger than all my peers than I actually was. Because now I look at the photos and I'm like, what the heck? I looked the same. Like, it's so weird. It's the weirdest experience. And you really only know what it's like if you've if you've been through it. But anyway, so that was like 16. And then I got to college. And by that point, I wasn't able to keep up with the highly restrictive lifestyle like most people can. Obviously, there's cases of chronic anorexia and everything. But for me, like I, I wasn't going to keep doing that. It was just it was too much of an ask for my body and my mind. So I eventually started like going the other direction, which is really common. And started binging and emotional overeating. And then I felt so guilty about it that I would purge. And so the irony of all of this was that I was going to school to be a dietitian. And so it was just like, I was starting to gain weight. I felt so embarrassed and so shameful. And I just like, was like, this is, this is, I don't like this. I don't like this feels, you know, like I'm supposed to be an expert in this. And I'd always wanted to go into the field of eating disorders too. And so. To answer your question, back to that, the reason I'm so passionate about this and particularly binge eating is because of the shame that's involved and the guilt. It's it's like crushing, you know, like with the society and the culture that we have that's so obsessed with people looking fit and eating healthy and getting to the top of the social hierarchy that way. It's like, it's so distressing to have these things happen to you and be feeling out of control with food and then seeing your your weight go up because it's just like the opposite of what you want, you know, based on what you're taught that you should do. Um, yeah. So yeah. that's, so yeah. Let's backtrack really quickly because you mentioned that you had the body, body dysmorphia for as long as you can remember. Do you think that had to do with dance, your parents? Because I do know that as you mentioned with dancing, I've seen this mm-hmm. quite often. I've heard the story several times of little girls who start off in dance early and they're kind of given messages of, like you mentioned, 
be as skinny as possible. You know, you right. have to look a certain Bring way. A yeah, sometimes I can develop really early on from these things. Yeah, I would say I don't really have an answer because I actually didn't start dancing until I was 11. And so, and I, I would say that I felt larger than everybody from even before that, you know, so potentially just environment before that environment was introduced, you know, mm -hmm. friends and family and even TV too, you know, like I'm thinking about the shows I used to watch and everybody on the shows were like so small, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't know. It's such a mysterious condition. We don't know a lot about it. Yeah. It, it sounds like a little bit of everything, you know, mm -hmm. it's like how when people say, you know, what causes obesity? It's like, well, this is multifactorial and yeah. uh, same thing. In in this case, it sounds like there was a messaging in, in your case coming from all different directions, which is really unfortunate. And, but that's just the environment that some people, you know, grow up. And you mentioned in the 90s, you know, it, some of it's still going on to a certain extent, yeah, especially on social media and yeah, in the media as well. And so you have to be really careful about the things that you're let, letting your children be exposed to when it comes to the messaging that yeah. that is, you know, creating a narrative in their mind of like, is this how I'm supposed to look? Am I supposed to be doing these things that can happen early on if they're getting exposed to the wrong messages? And for for women and little boys, I mean, I think with boys, it happens a little bit later. But, you know, when you start playing sports and stuff and you start to see some of these people on social media that are taking steroids and significantly larger than what's you know genetically possible naturally mm -hmm. like that's the thing that i think affects uh guys more so is there's a large percentage of people who take you know steroids that don't talk about it and right. and then there's this ideal my son asked me already because my son's 10 he's asked me you know oh hi you know how come this guy's so much bigger and i'm like you know, he he, he asked me about the rock and I'm like, he's definitely on steroids. <laughs> and he's like, and, and I'm like, oh, it, it's hard to, it, I mean, it's hard to explain this to a child, but you yeah. kind of have to you, because they're, they're gonna going to see it anyway. To, yeah. They're going to see it. Yeah. And you have to have those conversations as early as possible and yeah. you have to be the dominant messenger uh, for them. Otherwise they're probably going to get some of these other messages and Unfortunately, in your case, your parents were contributing to the messaging and mm -hmm. probably to no fault of their own, just the environment that yeah. they were in and what they were exposed to and what they um, had learned, you know, in their life as well. Yeah. Yes. And I, that's why I don't blame them for it. You know, like if I hadn't honestly gone to school to be a dietitian, I don't think I would have been able to correct all of those beliefs that I had. Cause that was actually super healing for me was just to go through that education. And mm -hmm. obviously like not everybody does and not everybody has the opportunity to really have all these beliefs that they have about whatever it is, body weight or food or all these myths debunked, you know, cause they're just not exposed to it or their algorithm isn't feeding it to them or whatever. So I, I don't really blame people for that. And I don't blame my parents for that. I think that it's just a natural reflection of what they knew in their own environment. Yeah. And even, even when you mentioned debunked, I mean, it, it just takes more than that. Mm -hmm. You're not, you're not going to come across a post and someone debunks some of the things that you believe for a long time and have, you know, really felt fallen deep into a disorder around it's going to require 
quite a bit more than just exposure to the right information when it's that deeply rooted. So I want to talk about your journey through that a little bit, but also I want to kind of backtrack and go back to, you mentioned that, you know, when you were 16, you started counting calories, started going to the gym. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about a little bit more about what that looked like? And then also when you recognized that you actually had a problem, like, did you know Mm -hmm. already or did that come about a little bit later where you're like, hmm, this is a little bit... I thought I was, I was, I thought I was the healthiest person ever. I thought I was the picture of health. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. So I, for whatever reason, probably saw something on Pinterest or who knows that like 1200 calories was, well, I think I actually did like a calorie, um, I was probably Mifflin St. George or something. I'm sure that told me I should have, I should only be eating like 1200 calories for, maintenance but me being the young little impressionable peon that i was thought that that means i should only eat 1200 calories period even if i was moving my body and exercising and going to dance four days a week for at least two hours at a time and then the gym on top of that you know like i yeah my understanding of energy needs is not good. So that was always like my goal. And I'm, I don't want that to be like triggering for somebody or something. But that, I think that's a really common belief is that you should only have 1200 calories a day, which is why I bring it up. Because that was like, not nearly enough for me and my energy needs. But yeah, so I was like tracking in my fitness pal. And I do want to acknowledge too, that I think there's a lot of people in the on social media that say that Calorie counting is always bad, always wrong, always going to cause an eating disorder. And I don't agree with that. I think there's people that can like self-monitor their intake and it's fine for them and it's genuinely helping them in some way or they even just do it for a short period of time. But for me personally, it was like too much of a mind game, you know, and I got too obsessive. And so... Like if I would reach 1200 calories or exceed it, then I felt like a failure. And if I was under it, then I felt like, great, I'm on track. You know, so it just became a game of like, how much space can I create between the top level goal, like the ceiling of 1200 calories, and then how much I'm actually taking in. And then I would log my exercise and that would bring the numbers down lower and everything. And so, yeah, it's it just became abusive in a sense, you know, but I thought that I was just being healthy. And that was like, by that point, I think I was 16 when I learned what a dietitian was. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. Hindsight, that was totally from a disordered place because I was like, oh, I'm already thinking about nutrition all the time. I'll just make a job out of it. That was great. I want to know what the perfect diet is. So I want (laughs) to go to school for it. I, I, I find that that's a lot more common than I expected. And I went down a different path. So I was surprised when I realized that when I started taking classes in dietetics and I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot of eating disorders around in, in the, you know, around just, you could just tell by the way that people were eating everyone. There was a, there was many people who were got into the path due to 
just like you said, which is yes. Hopefully, the learning helps them to you know get through those those you know habits and and behaviors. But Mm -hmm. I think sometimes they some people maintain it and continue into practice with that. uh, Especially some of the some of the through some of the content I see online where. Yeah. You know, those disordered eating habits are are still with them or, and I'm glad that you mentioned it, or they overcome it and then they kind of go to the other extreme of like, oh, you know, tracking calories at any time is bad because yeah. this is what it did to me. And totally. so, you know, sometimes I feel like going into the path from that perspective can sometimes bias people's mm-hmm. information a little bit one way or the other if you're, if you have that emotional tied to you know that the food in that way so i kind of sometimes that kind of worries me that that that's what draws so many people into the profession it's like it's not about you know nourishment and learning all about nutrition it's like i want to learn the perfect diet so that i can finally you know have that perfect diet that i've been striving for for so long it's true and it's really sad i know there's been a little bit of research on that i can't remember the statistic but it was more than you would ever want to see that the the number of nutrition and dietetic professionals who are exhibiting signs of disordered eating and eating disorders i actually have a friend her instagram is called the nutrition insight project and she does fabulous work with just focusing on that population and normalizing like hey you might be struggling with your relationship with food as a new nutrition professional and here's some signs of that and here's what we can do about that you know and i think that's fantastic and for me i think i had a really great curriculum i also just had a really great class i actually feel like my dietetics class was such a fun group that generally speaking the majority of them had a really healthy relationship with food and i was like oh here's these people who are like at the epitome of like they are just in, as into this as I am, right? And yet they're cool with going to have some Mexican food. Why? That's interesting. Like, I guess I can do that too, you know? And I got that during successful. my PhD. Very similar during my PhD. Because <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was definitely like a, a lot more, rest- I wasn't like, you know, super restricted, but I like kind of avoided processed foods and yeah. didn't go out to eat very often you know, kind of would get worried if I went out to eat because I didn't know what they were cooking the food in and the oils and the, you know, all of that stuff. And during my PhD, that kind of helped me as well, because, you know, you're around a lot of smart people who've been studying this topic for quite some time. And most of them at that point had, you know, very healthy, balanced relationships with Mm -hmm. food, exercise. They just lived a healthy life because, you know, knowledge is power. And that's why I try to teach is because once you learn, you know, okay, this, this isn't really as bad as the scary person, you know, the scary post I saw on social media, mm-hmm. and, you know, it, it helps you to kind of get over some of these fears and, and just be a little bit more comfortable with some of these choices. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that speaks to the power of examples in your life. And my professors were great examples, too. I, know, I don't think I had any professors that were like, too extreme with their beliefs or the way that they eat and match up with what they were talking about or whatever you know like my my whole environment in my undergraduate degree was really really good for fostering a healthy relationship with food i know that's not the case for everybody though and that's a bummer i also wish that all curriculums for dietitians and any nutrition professional 
required a course on eating disorders. Mm. Mine was an elective. I elected to take it because I was especially interested in that. Most people elected to take the sports nutrition course, right? And so, and they maybe needed to be exposed to that information. And I would have loved to have done that course too. I just, <laughs> there's so much to learn that I know they can't give you everything you need to know or want to know, I guess. They have to give you what you need to know. And I maybe even biased, but I feel like an education on eating disorders, at least a class is, I think that's needed, honestly, with how big of a problem it is, especially in the profession. But yeah, did I? well, now that they've gone to a master's degree, I feel like there's mm -hmm. more room for some of these things that, yeah. that are important. Because like you said, a bachelor's degree just doesn't cut it for diet dietetics. I, I have always thought that yeah, you, this should be a master's degree minimum because nutrition mm -hmm. is, it's, it's a form of medical care. You know, you're, yeah. you're dealing with people with chronic health issues. You're experiencing a, a wide variety of different cases and challenges, and you need to refer back to the research. You need to have an understanding of how to read the research. And you can't get that during a bachelor's degree. So I'm really glad to see that they're going to master's degree for registered dietitian. Those of you who are listening who are not in the field. So if, to become a dietitian previously, you only needed a bachelor's degree. So, you know, two years of regular courses and you're only really taking two years of nutrition courses, which you're covering the absolute basics of, but you can't really get in depth on many topics in a two year yeah. program. Now they added that you have to get a master's degree. And so dietitians, in my opinion, will be a, a much more well-trained with, you know, requiring the master's degree across the board. I agree. I think it elevates the profession a little bit. And, and also when you think about like the different fields that dietitians can work in, it's the, the bachelor's degree was really just giving such a like little basic foundation that they weren't specialized in anything until you actually go work in that field, which is true for a lot of professions. But I just think a master's gives you an opportunity to actually study a specialized area a little bit more if that's what you want to do. Um, and I, I think that should be a requirement. Yeah. I, I yeah. think the dietetics should go towards not a requirement, but pushing people towards specialties. Like, kind of like doctors, be, you know, they have like yeah. a fellowship in it's, gastroenterology it's so or whatever. Easier. Yeah, it's so much easier when you specialize in, in with uh, when you're working with nutrition because it is so complicated and yeah. you, you have to understand the pathophysiology. You have to understand how that disease works. If you're working with people with digestive issues, you have to understand how digestive issues work. And that's something that yeah. doesn't get covered. You don't have time to cover that in a normal curriculum nope. if there's not a specialty. So you're giving advice but you don't actually understand how the digestive system works and you know to the degree that would be necessary to like fully understand how that all how the nutrition may be playing a role and yeah. mechanistically which i think is important so like personally i primarily work with people with digestive issues because i it gives me you know the opportunity to spend a lot of time reading that research so that i know that i can be very confident in the things that i'm yeah recommending and then i also know the pathophysiology of it because i've read you know lots and lots on how ibs develops and all of the different you know how the microbiome plays a role and how the nervous system plays a role and you have to learn that stuff in order to like effectively treat your your patients and a lot of dietitians will go and learn that on their own 
which is great, but I think that some of that stuff needs to eventually be put into the curriculum. I agree. I I would like to see that too. Again, I just think it helps to elevate the profession when we've got so many like charlatans trying to talk about nutrition. Everything. And then dietitians can't respond well. That's like really, it's sad when people, when dietitians are not able to respond to something well or they go along with it because they just don't know better you should know better yeah you know yeah that's where the training the improved training and and hopefully specialization and hopefully more specialization with like eating disorders and eating disorder Mm -hmm. recovery because it's it's so important it's getting more important uh now so let's let's talk quickly about your journey from there and how you know so when you got to college you started to improve did you, and, and so the environment is the main thing. Was there anything else or was it just like this change in environment was like, okay, that's what you needed. Did you have to go to therapy? Did you do any like other conscious effort to kind of work through that? Yeah, my recovery was kind of a slow burn, to be honest. It was like, like, well, that eating disorders class was super helpful. That was like kind of shattered my world in a really good way. <laughs> But even then, I still like I remember reading through the criteria of different eating disorders and I was like, oh, I kind of like sounds like me, but not totally like me. You know, like I I would look through all the criteria and be like, well, I don't meet 100 percent of those points. So I'm like, I'm okay." And it's just like the lies you tell yourself, you know, one, I must not be sick enough or I'm not sick at all if I don't match this 100 percent. And so it yeah, like eventually I was like, okay, clearly there's a better way to live. That was more what it was. It wasn't so much like, oh, I have a problem. It was like, I think there's a better way to live. And then hindsight, oh, I had a problem, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so yeah, my education helped a lot going through that course, going through all the other nutrition-related physiology, biology courses and realizing my body can handle a lot more than I was giving credit for. And yeah, like I... I really never ended up getting professional help because it never got to that point. I don't necessarily recommend that, though. I think if you recognize that you're struggling with your relationship with food, it's better to get help than like waiting until it's bad enough or whatever. Like I I just was in a unique position to be getting the same education as a lot of people who would eventually give me help. I did go get it. So, yeah, it was. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, yeah. You so I mean, and this speaks to the importance of of your environment. And Mm -hmm. you know, your environment is not just your home or your friends, but you can also create like a a virtual environment as well. So Mm -hmm. your social media feed, that's also part of your environment if you're spending a lot of time there. And you know, in your case, it sounds like just that environmental change was enough to shift you in the other direction. And then you combine that with additional knowledge and really understanding uh, a bit more about nutrition, which I think everyone should be, you know, we should be putting this into elementary school. Like people should be learning their energy needs and not maybe a little bit later, but like, you know, middle school, high school, like really getting a good in-depth education on nutrition, I think should be a something that is required in high school because this is probably one of the most important things when it comes to our health and having no clue about it is really driving people towards eating disorders and diet industry and all sorts of health issues. But, you know, that that piece, I think, would be really, really helpful, that knowledge 
but environment you know these two mm-hmm. things seem to be really important and i I've never heard a story like yours where someone just kind of shifted environment, but it makes <laughs> sense because of of how much of a shift it was where you're mm-hmm. going into, you know, other experts and people that you respect. That's another important yeah. thing is like you respected those people when you saw that they were doing, they, they weren't living in that way and they were, they were okay with it. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was a total shift in environment. I moved like halfway across the country to go to college actually. So in every sense of the word, it was a change environment and yeah, it was necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Not everyone has that luxury. So we can talk about some other things, but I want to first uh, get into, because you and I have discussed this a little bit offline, some statistics around Mm -hmm. eating disorders, because I know that they're increasing. So can you give me some, some kind of general numbers there? Yeah. So the latest that we know of, and I don't know, well, can't do that in a second. So the latest that we know of is in terms of the U.S., about 9% of the population, which is about 29 million Americans, will have an eating disorder in their lifetime at some point. And for females, they're two times more likely to develop one. Um, When we look at the whole world and we zoom out even further, it's lower in terms of prevalence comparatively to the U.S. The U.S. has higher prevalence rates than the whole world combined, but the uh, global rates actually increased from 2000. They were about 3.5 percent of the world was struggling or will struggle with an eating disorder at some point, and it's more than doubled in less than 20 years, with our latest report being in 2018 that 7.8 percent, so about 8 percent, of people worldwide. And if you asked me, I think that those numbers, I would bet my life savings that they are grossly underreported because when we think about how eating disorders manifest and the feelings that it brings in people, there's a ton of shame involved, embarrassment, depending on the type of disorder. But there's also, I, I mean, overall with all of them, there's a sense of secrecy. and And then when you think about men, you know, and marginalized individuals, there's this like still this thought that it's just a white girl problem. And yeah, I know I'm not helping that at all. But, (laughs) you know, there's this like stigma, I guess, that then men don't struggle and people of color don't struggle. But that's just not true. And so I think that those individuals, though, because of that, they don't think they have a problem. Or if they do have a problem, they think that people will judge them because it's supposed to just be a white girl issue. And so, and a teenage white girl issue at that. And so I think the the numbers are, that can't be even close to what's actually true when we think about all those things. I always so. think that too. <laughs> when I see those numbers, I'm like, I, I don't know enough about this topic to, to you know, critically evaluate it, but it doesn't, doesn't seem yeah. uh, correct in the yeah. U.S. I mean, it yeah. seems like, but I'm also... You know, working in this field, people are more conscious about nutrition. And I do know that it is more prevalent. And and it's not, as you mentioned, like the the white girl issue. It's it's a socioeconomic thing because and I think this is why things have changed across the world is because people of low socioeconomic status don't worry about that as much because they're worried about other yeah. stuff. Like I didn't know what dieting was <laughs> until I was like a teenager and started dating someone who lived 
in a different area than I did. And I was like, oh, people are like worried about nutrition like this. Like, this is yeah, weird. People want organic foods. What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it was like, eat what you can, you know, gr- right. I never yeah. heard anyone talk about a diet. No women, no yeah. men. And so that's where like I had no concept of dieting until I was like an adult and started hearing people say stuff about it. So I had zero of that like underlying yeah ever thought about nutrition until I was like, oh, I want to eat healthier to improve my health because I think it's probably a good thing. <laughs> like that's kind of how I first got into even ever thinking about nutrition at like 18 or 19 years old. Yeah. There's that environment again, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you mentioned the the prevalence in the U.S. So I've heard this statistic before, and I, I was wondering if you can elaborate on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I've heard a lot of people mention that eating disorders are like the 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 most deadly mental health condition, or the second most deadly, or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Is that true? And in like, what what is the cause? Like, is it because of malnutrition? Is it because of suicide? Like, what's going on there? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. So as far as I know, it is the second most deadly mental or psychiatric condition, the first being opioid abuse and and addiction or opiate. So the, I mean, that's multifaceted too in terms of why it, I mean, if we look at just binge eating disorder, which there's like separate rates for that too that I could give you if you want, but if we look at just that, one in five people, current estimates, are going to try and commit suicide. Mm-hmm. So that's just binge eating disorder. Then you think about a case like anorexia, nervosa, and, and even bulimia too. The, the co-occurrence of these mental health issues that are also very involved with food and everything with other psychiatric conditions like depression and anxiety and personality disorder, substance abuse disorder, bipolar disorder is, I mean, it's honestly, I think it's kind of rare to see somebody with an eating disorder that doesn't have some sort of other psychiatric condition as well that is fueling a general sense of unhappiness and feeling like they need to escape somehow into a substance or through suicide or or through starving themselves further, you know? So certainly malnutrition is a piece of that, but I think I wish that I had a way to tease out or if there was a report of teasing out all the different things, there might be somewhere I should look into that. But I think it's probably like the combination of substance abuse and then unfortunately suicide and stuff too. It's it's really sad. Yeah, yeah. I I've heard that statistic before and I was just curious as to like what what the context of it is cuz uh, you know sometimes you hear statistics and I'm like okay, is it because of malnutrition or is it the other, you know, comorbidities yeah. that that occur with with the eating disorders? Yeah, I'd be curious to go more into into the source of that and see how they came up with that number. Now you got me curious. I'm going to look into that. But if I had to guess, it's it's multifaceted. I, I figured that was the case, mm-hmm. but I, I I thought you might have the exact statistics because I was curious yeah. myself and I hadn't looked at it yet. Yeah. So a couple, uh, couple questions before we close out. So when it comes to eating disorders, if someone's thinking like, you know, I'm, I might be there, you know, what, what are some, some 
things to to look for? What are some questions to ask yourself? How would someone go about kind of considering whether or not they they fall within the criteria of of having an eating disorder? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question with so many answers. A good place to start is just like a screening tool, to be honest. There's a few online, but I mean, really just go like talk to your provider. They should have some screening tools handy, especially if it's a therapist. But some some questions to ask yourself to maybe get to the point of going to see a provider is, do I have rules around food that is distressing to me if I can't follow them or if they get broken somehow? For example, let's say that you have this belief that you can't have seed oil. If you were to have, like, if somebody put creamer in your coffee and you didn't know what that creamer was made out of, would you still be able to drink the coffee? Or would it be distressing to you? Or would you go home and have a panic attack if you forced yourself to drink it? You know, like, that's, there's something there. And then, yeah, like, are you able to go off plan without it derailing you, whether it it is a certain ingredient or if it's, like, calories for the day or carbs or whatever it is? And then do you find yourself feeling like you're living a second life? Are there things that you do behind closed doors that you're not comfortable sharing with others? Do you find that food is distressing to you in any way? Is it hard for you to look at food without just thinking of calories or of points if you're a Weight Watchers addict or the color on the new yeah ingredients or like the stoplight color from Noom or whatever it is like. If you think that food or if you feel like food is on your mind all the time, then that can be a pretty big indicator that there's something going on there. And we haven't even touched on the body image stuff, too, partly because eating disorders don't always involve desire to lose weight, but they often do. So some additional questions to consider would be, how would you feel if you gained weight? How would you feel if you weren't ever able to get to your dream body? Would you, is that your biggest fear is gaining weight? I was just watching a video. I don't know if you saw Dr. Itz's video on this girl that was talking about lectins, but she, she was reacting to her. And one of the things that she said in there, in her reaction, like back to other people reacting to her was like, I don't see the problem in me just talking about what I do to not gain weight. My biggest fear is being fat. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, if that's like something that's on your mind that extensively and no judgment, because I've been there. That was me. I never said it out loud, but yeah, that was totally my biggest fear because that's how misaligned my values were was that my biggest fear was being fat you know like now it's just like embarrassing to say but it's true and so if that's true for you too then there may be a misalignment in values and some disordered thinking and processes going on yeah yeah those are great and yeah I mean I I feel like I would have fit some of those criteria at some point when I got really obsessive and I feel like gray yeah, there, there's a fine line because, yes, nutrition is an important aspect of our health. Like we, you want to invest time and energy into feeding yourself a healthy diet and you got to spend time on eating anyway. So, yes, you know, sometimes it may be a little bit more time consuming to eat, eat healthy and nutritiously, but, you know, that investment's worth it. So there's, mm-hmm. there's a fine line between, you know, 
being, you know, investing time and energy into something because it's good for you and you want to live a healthy life and you want to reduce your risk of chronic disease and feel good and, and you're doing it from a very positive standpoint versus like you said of where where there's just more negative around it it's yeah it, you're doing it because you're scared of things you're doing yeah. it because you you don't want to get fat you're doing it because it's more coming from a place of negativity versus doing like it from fear a place of motivated positive. yeah and exactly yeah. and i think that's really really important to consider like how you see this topic is it something that you do from a positive standpoint because you want to take care of yourself or is it um driven by fear and and yeah. if it's the latter i would definitely recommend you know to the extent that it is you know maybe you need to seek treatment maybe you just need to change some of your environmental inputs and just be more aware of it for yourself and and, and really just try to move out of that space because you know, your, your diet's not going to be healthy if, if it's centered around fear, you know, the health yeah. is about more than just what you put into your body. It's the thoughts that you have and your mental health. And, and if, if you're constantly, or, or even not even constantly, but if it is causing you negative thoughts on a regular basis and you can't go out to eat without, you know, worrying about things, or you go over to a friend's house, cause this is, you know, this is a place where I was, where like, if I went to a friend's house, I'd be worried about how they cooked everything and I would not want to touch yeah. certain things. And, you know, probably eat before and, and like avoid foods while I was there. And, you know, yeah. although that wasn't like, you know, fully disordered, you know, diagnosable, that was still to a point where I'm like making choices that were largely driven by things that were really insignificant in the larger scheme of things, like me having yeah. a couple of, you know, chips and things and, and foods that I didn't normally eat in that certain occasion because I was hanging out with friends is not a big deal. Um, yeah. and took me a while to kind of get a really healthy balance, uh, you know, cause once you get into nutrition and you find that it's important and you see benefits from it, you're like, you get really excited about it and, and mm -hmm. sometimes take it a little too far, but yeah, yeah, those are some great, great things. So what, if someone does, if they're listening and they're like, okay, I think I have a problem. I think I might need to get some help cause it seems like it's, you know, pretty problematic. What, what would be the first place that you would recommend in terms of like seeking treatment? Wow. That's such a, I have so many answers to that too. <laughs> I feel like everything is like, it depends. It, yeah. Cause it does. It depends on like the severity, you know, of where you're at. And so I think like a good place to start is I know the national eating disorders association has a good screening tool on their website. That's free. And so you can do that. If you want to mm -hmm. just kind of get like a quick little, how am I doing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the cool thing about that too is it can't diagnose you with anything, but they will recommend if you should seek help or not. I think mm -hmm. from the last I saw, I haven't looked at it in a while, but they also have like a provider map of people near you. And so a good thing to do is just like reach out to somebody who specializes in the field to have an initial consultation. Worst thing that'll happen is you go and they say, you know what? I'm actually not worried about you. We don't really need to visit. Great. Now you've got confirmation, but it could potentially be, I mean, really saving your life to just take that one step to make an appointment with somebody. And then in terms of who to make an appointment with, there's a lot of different directions you go to go with that. You could see a provider, you could see a psychiatrist, therapist, or a dietitian. 
the psychiatrist, well, somebody that is actually able to diagnose you, you may or may not want to do that. Dietitians can't diagnose, but if you see like a medical provider, they can. If you're seeking a diagnosis, maybe that's not even helpful for you to get a label. You don't need mm -hmm. a label to get help, you know. But I would say, like, see somebody that specializes in eating disorders. Please, for the love of God, do not just see some random health professional that has no experience in eating disorders. Because as we were talking about before, there isn't like basic education about that built in, especially for dietitians. And I know for therapists, too, they have to be specialized and get extra training. Mm -hmm. And without that extra training they really do cause harm on accident. It happens all the time. They give improper advice, harmful advice, because they don't know better. They haven't gotten the right training. Even if you're like, I don't have an official eating disorder. Still, if you struggle with your relationship with food, that's the type of professional you want to go to. And seriously, like, just reach out to me on Instagram too. If you're like, hey, here's what I'm struggling with. If I can help, I'd love to help. But if I can't, I'll try and send you to somebody else who can or give you some resources for where you can go from there. But yeah, like I'm happy to to listen and see if I can help in any way. Cool, cool. Yeah, and I, I've, I've worked with a few clients who've, who have said that they got a lot of benefit from working with both a therapist and a dietitian at the same yes. time. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. I feel like yeah. that's like the best case scenario because... <laughs> you can get the knowledge and then you get the other side of the, the mental side of it. But the knowledge is important because I've seen the other side where people are trying to work through the mental you know, side of things, but they still feel out of control with their nutrition because they don't know what yes. to do. And so I think a, a bit of both working with a dietitian who has some experience and a therapist probably is a really good approach and can like probably give you the highest uh, rate of success. Yes, it is actually the gold standard. So I'm glad you brought that up. Having a multidisciplinary approach with an unhealthy relationship with food is crucial because it is a psychiatric condition, but also it has to do with food too. So a lot of times what I see is that somebody is seeking therapy for it, which can be so helpful in so many ways. But there's this like pocket of information and struggles that they're missing having the proper attention on and so a dietitian can help like fill in those gaps there's a lot of crossover a lot of times too like I used to work in outpatient eating disorder treatment and I felt like a nutrition therapist actually one of my titles is licensed medical nutrition therapist but anyway so there is and you know like therapists will sometimes be like well you should like prioritize a variety in your diet whatever like there's gonna be some crossover but that doesn't mean that you should just pick one. I, I really do believe in a multidisciplinary approach. And my my online coaching program, I'm like super stoked because in the last year I brought on a therapist who is our body image coach. So now all of our clients get this like multidisciplinary approach, which I'm obsessed with because it's yeah. just, it's so effective. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it, that's why I mentioned it because I know that you still have to eat. And mm -hmm that's the that's the hardest challenge is it's not like alcohol where you you can work through the mental side of the addiction portion of it and and you can abstain from it yeah you still have to eat and you have to make yeah. decisions around eating and you have to feel comfortable with those and that is probably going to require some education and some professional help on that side of things as well that's why i wanted to definitely put that in there so 
we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge and wisdom today. So if you could just let the listeners know where they can find you. You mentioned your Instagram. I know you have a podcast as well. So if you could just kind of uh, plug those things, tell everyone where they can find you to find out more information, that'd be great. Yeah, thanks for asking. So I do have a podcast. It's called Nourished and Free. So if you're interested in topics of healing your relationship with food or even just like some myth busting with nutrition, I know Adrian does a great job of that too, but I have some on some episodes kind of myth busting stuff from the perspective of somebody who does struggle with their relationship with food for people or who used to for people with that struggle with their relationship with food. So if you like having kind of that lens on nutrition information and learning more about how to foster a healthy body image and and just learn more about eating disorders or disordered eating in general, especially the topic of binge eating. I kind of talked about that earlier, but that is my favorite, favorite little niche topic is binging because I, like I said, I know there's so much shame around that and I genuinely feel like nobody should feel that way. It's just like no way to live. So that's one of my favorite things to talk about. I do have a couple of like free things that you can do in regards to binge eating and overeating. So yeah, I mean, I recommend just going to my Instagram page if you have Instagram because I have, I mean, I'm sure the link in my bio, whenever you're listening to this, will be up updated with some free resources for you. And and then, I mean, I'm on most social flat platforms at Yates Nutrition. Okay, so at Yates, Yates Nutrition? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep, okay. that should be... I think all of my socials are under that one, but I hang out on Instagram the most. I'm also on YouTube these days. Well, yeah. kinda, I don't know yeah. what I'm doing over there, but <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how it goes. Well, I will post links to all of that in the show notes. But as we mentioned earlier, you know, the importance of changing your environment. So one of the ways that you can change your environment is changing those information inputs. So if you are someone who's struggling with these things and you want, so, you know, some a new place to learn new information and help like you said, kind of work through the topics from that perspective, because that is important. You know, mm -hmm. I talk about nutrition from a, a certain lens, and sometimes it's good yeah. to get it from, from you know, a different lens. So that would be very helpful for a lot of you, I'm sure, to go and listen to, to the podcast and go follow Michelle on Instagram. And as she mentioned earlier, you can reach out to her if you have any other questions. Thank you so much for coming on today, Michelle. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. And I am such a big fan, as I said. <laughs> yeah, thank you honor. so much. I'm glad to have you.